a person, his name is Mr. Arthur Vase, the founder of an uh, altruistic foundation based in Lucerne, Switzerland. He came up with the idea, or with the notion of uh, architectural blueprints uh, for sustainable kindergartens, schools and colleges which could be given to uh, initiators of educational projects in Africa, uh, mostly Montessori children houses and schools. At this time, I was uh, in Ethiopia helping a small community to build their own town. This would be another lecture. Um, but what is important for you to know is that by this time, which is quite recently, up to 2015, I didn't have any idea about Montessori, other than just the name of Maria Montessori, but I had no idea what it means. So part of why I'm so nervous is because I'm not a Montessorian. And you know everything much better than I do, maybe except the architecture, which is somewhat strange. However, uh, my story with Montessori changed in 2016, you're quite right, two years ago, uh, when coming back to Switzerland, um, I was offered by two um, collaborators of Mr. Arthur Vasa, by Soraya Lalani and by Monica Arnold, the uh, possibility to elaborate these blueprints for the Arthur Vasa Foundation. Now, from my experience and from what I have seen so far, building operation and maintenance of kindergartens and schools is a community act and ultimately an intergenerational project. So with regard to sustainability, a sense of ownership within a community is vital and hence it should be a project executed with the common consent of the population and with its human, natural and financial resources. Training and organization of local labor forces, the lasting utilization of regionally available building material and environmentally friendly operation are all integral parts of sustainable architecture. So for me, it very soon became clear that the provision of ready-made architectural plans, and this is what blueprints actually means, would in most cases offer a solution not appropriate, with, you know, without the context of the culture and its environment, would offer in most cases a solution too expensive for the concerned communities. And that's why we eventually agreed with Arthur Vasa Foundation that instead of making blueprints, we would do something differently. We would try to offer um, a set of solutions called patterns. So, but I will go to this a little bit later. I just give you a small, so because my stance was actually supported by the fact that in contrast to Rudolf Steiner, and his anthroposophical architecture. Maria Montessori never defined a particular architectural style. So if you look at uh, Rudolf Steiner's architecture, 
this house is actually here, blueprints would actually work. Because they don't, they don't pretend to have something to do with its environment. You can put them anywhere on the planet, like this. It is defined by an architectural style. Now looking at Montessori schools, and I took these photographs myself on three different continents, at first glance they seem to have nothing in common. Nevertheless, as more as I learned about these schools, they nevertheless provide a very particular architectural quality. All of these portrait uh, children houses and schools have in common an incredible positive and inspiring atmosphere for children, but also for the teachers. So the question is how you describe something which cannot be seen at first glance, but rather be felt. And the possible answer is by describing patterns. So now, to make this a little bit more understandable, I would like to go back a little bit to this slide. So I told you, at first glance, it seems to have nothing in common, these different types of architecture. But if you look a little bit closely, then you see that all of these schools, and uh, in one case a children's house, they do show main entrances. What you cannot know but maybe feel if you look at the photographs is that they're all facing the east. So all of these facades you see here facing the east. And the incredible thing about this is when a child approaches the school in the morning, it approaches a school which is lit in sunshine. So it steps into the school with a positive energy. And this is something fundamentally different than when you would approach a school on, from the west side. And you know, this is a nice example for something which is true for every human being on our planet, regardless of its culture, of its race, of its color, whatever. The sun always rises in the east. And this is just an example of a pattern. This is described by style, not by pattern. So here you can say a school mustn't have right angles, for instance. The shape has to be round. But here you would describe it differently. And because of this, we eventually agreed that instead of blueprints, this is what we would provide this, uh, these patterns. So that we would provide rather a handbook. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, a handbook with a series of solutions um, to recurring architectural problems uh, provi in providing this quality. The idea to work with patterns is what eventually brought me and Steve together thanks to Lynn. And so more than 20 years after Hilla Patel's approaching Steve Lawrence, we started to work 
uh, on these Montessori architectural patterns. And the aim, with the aim of, uh, of, uh, pr of, of creating a self-explanatory design instrument which serve architects as well as laypersons. Um, and in this regard, I just can refer to my, to the people who, who gave the presentations a few minutes ago, to people like Louise, to, to Erica and to Uma, and to Helen, um, to enable them to uh, create the educational spaces regardless of, uh, of, what, of, their, of their knowledge. Simple self-explanatory design instruments which serve architects as well lay, as laypersons irrespective of economical possibility to create the ideal educational space for children in any cultural environmental context. So, in order to get started with our work, AMI um, put together a list of so-called reference institutions. So we had to go to see nice examples of Montessori architecture. So this followed the five criteria. Firstly, it shall cover all four planes of development and therefore include children, houses and schools. It shall include examples from at least three different continents, including Africa. It shall comprise of purposely built learning institutions and converted facilities. It shall consist of buildings designed by female and by, my, by male architects. And all reference institutions, and this is probably the most important thing, uh, all reference institutions shall be symbols of pride for the San Montessori movement. It is to say that in two cases, um, a school in Burkina Faso and one in Bangladesh, um, these are not actual Montessori institutions but they, have, they, they, they show the same patterns and they have been designed with Montessori pedagogues involved. So when we talk about Montessori architecture, we don't necessarily talk about Montessori institutions. This is not the same thing. What we would like to do is to provide something which can be used by anyone who wants to build a kindergarten or school. It is based on the Montessori philosophy. So, uh, we literally took thousands of photographs and we just did what I just tried to explain. So, uh, we also have done hand drawings and we are, redo we are redrawing all the plans, features and so on, all in order to understand Montessori architectural patterns. Um, so far, we have uh, located 28 patterns and here I really want to point out that uh, none of the learning institutions we visited enshrine all the 28 patterns. Um, but they are, the things which you can find in your uh, seminar paper are the most common among them. So we also brought them into a hierarchy so they can serve as a checklist during the design process. 
and they are organized and they are organized in general design principles in uh, everything which uh, which is between the child approaches the school and the actual classroom the classroom itself how is the classroom configured as a room then the classroom elements these are the things inside the classroom then all the things which are adjacent to the classroom and then lastly all the elements which are part of the school or the kindergarten children's house but don't have to be connected to the classroom I think an important aspect of uh, what we are preparing right now is to explain a pattern as a phenomenon and to elaborate on the respective aim in the design process. This approach leaves the task to the architect or to the lay person who is doing it uh, to design an individual and appropriate solution. In this way, the checklist explains the problem to be solved, but without to diminish the role of the architect or to determine a particular style. What I would like to do now is like to go with you through these 28 patterns. And you just stop me when my time is over, <laughs> and then you can read the list in the seminar paper. Well, as in any architectural object, design of educational space, as we understand it, starts with a so-called adjacency diagram, uh, based on a specific numbers of uh, rooms and size of rooms, also called schedule of accommodation. Uh, in Montessori architecture, however, Rooms are not determined by, a physical, by physical boundaries. And this is very important. Uh, but rather understood as structures of interconnected spaces. That's why in the design process, we suggest to draw the rooms overlapped from the very beginning. But since a classroom is not bound by a specific number of square meter when you're from the US uh, in square feet, its extent can correspond to the, to the need, to the requirement of any uh, educational activity. Some activities need less space, some activities need more space. The placement of different spaces follows a hierarchic order, which can be drawn from the daily activities of the respective kindergarten or school. For instance, starting with the greeting space when they enter the room and ending with the west side garden. Very often the arrangement follows the path of the sun. From the very beginning in the design process, and this is something I also at the university in Lucerne, this studying architecture, um, which is not often done. Um, 
if we talk about architecture and about architectural plans, we mostly look at plans from the top. So when you see a plan of a kindergarten or school, then you see a plan from the top. But if you look at the person, a, peep, a person like me or like you, since Homo erectus, we are mainly something which works vertically rather than from the top. So that's why we suggest that from the very beginning you draw, you draw a plan, you make sectional drawings as well. You think of something as a three-dimensional object. Because the nice Montessori schools, it's always a three-dimensional experience. Different heights of floors and different heights of ceilings. By the way, here, there's a very beautiful example because all of the children's houses here, they have always different heights of the floor. So there's always a step between different areas. So this gives a very interesting experience. And it also respects the geography, the topography of your environment. We also think from the very beginning of the materials. I mean, it's clear that the word materials has a higher meaning for you since we talk about sensorial material in your educational everyday life. But also in Montessori architecture, material is a very important thing. And we put it first, or so far in the front, because when you as an architect or a lay person who is interested in architecture designs a school, you should decide on the material from the very beginning. Because that material determines to a very large degree the possible shapes of your school. One of the essential elements, I don't have to tell you, in Montessori education is the constructivist learning model, where students can learn concepts from working with materials rather than by direct instruction in order to develop the cognitive power. On this account, the haptic quality of the building surface is of paramount importance. There is an inherent beauty in the roughness, in the simplicity, modesty, and intimacy of natural substances such as wood or stone. Because of this, Montessori sensorium and learning tools which are used in Montessori classroom to help children to develop or refine his or her five senses are made of such materials as well. At first sight, it might not always be possible to make the main entrance to the east. Because this is something I hear very often when people say, yeah, but what do I do when the only access to the compound is from the west side? Huh? What do I do then? And you know, the interesting thing is this question by itself is the chance to create something very beautiful. And this is a good example here, just on the, I have to, yeah, this school here, it's a very good example. This school, only possibility to access the compound is from the west side because the only road of the village is on the west side. So it's very understandable that they have the access to the compound from the west side. But the entrance to the school is on the east side. So the children, they have to walk all the way around to eventually end up in front of the east facade of the school. And you know, in many contexts nowadays, this is actually a big chance since more and more parents bring their children to school. Even in developing countries, this is more and more happening. So they drive the children with the car to the school. So what they lose, it's the walkway to the school. 
but having this, so you give it back to them so that they have to walk through the compound in order to end up in front of the east facade. So this problem, it's mostly, the, it's, it's a mean to create something very special. So this is another example of, uh, in, in uh, Colombo, in Sri Lanka, by Jeffrey Bawa. It's always the same. This is, uh, this is in Burkina Faso. So it's always the same picture. So children approaching the school from the east side. So after placement of the entrance, the adjacent, the adjacent greeting space can be shaped. So now this is something I have to explain, especially to people who are working in architecture. Usually, if an architect plans a school or a kindergarten, mainly schools, they, they think of the sizes of the classrooms first, because this is where they put most of the effort in, to make the classroom as big as possible. And it always goes to the disadvantage of the corridor in between. So the corridor is usually kept to the minimum and the classrooms to the maximum, which is very clear because this is how our rules and regulation work. But in Montessori architecture, this corridor is not a corridor. This corridor is what we call a greeting space. And it can be compared in many ways with the greeting space of the lobby of a hotel. When you come into a nice hotel, the first thing you experience is this incredible hall where you have a physical and visible connection to all the rooms, sometimes on several floors. So there's a person behind the counter which welcomes you. And when you meet someone in the hotel, you meet them at the lobby. There's a place where you can sit, where you can talk, and in the evening, you can have a drink. And this is the thing about Montessori school as well. So our greeting space is the lobby of a school. And it's the most important room. So if you have, to, if you have the money only for one single room, this is what you do. You do the greeting space and forget all the classrooms. Because this is also where you can expand anywhere your classroom. When you need more space, then you go into the greeting space. And if several teachers at the same time want to make an announcement or want to make a program with all the children, then you go into the greeting space. So that's why we put a lot of effort into the greeting space. This is an example by Herman Herzberger in Amsterdam, the Apollo School. And this is the greeting space at the Apollo School. So you have a visual connection to all the classrooms uh, on several floors. But as you can see, children also using this constantly as a working area. The avoidance of doors, that's a very tough thing for many architects as well. And also for rules and regulations in many countries. So we avoid doors, any physical boundaries between rooms. So it's always an experience of being connected with others. So we want to hear the noise of the other classrooms. Because this is something important. So we avoid doors, but at the same time also we give advice of how to do this in connection to rules and regulations. For instance, by doing sliding doors. So if the country where you live forces you to make doors because of fire regulations, for instance, you, for instance, maybe you can do sliding doors and then you hide them into the wall. 
Um, articulation of space, um, since all rooms are connected with each other, and this is not always true in many African countries where I have been, because usually classrooms are very much separated from each other. But if you have a connected space, you have to start to think of creating places within space. So we are articulate them. And in most cases, this is done with uh, furnitures. I mean, this is what you see mostly. So in Montessori environments, mostly you see furnitures are grouped in such a way that you create a place within a space. But this could also be done uh, with architecture. I mean, an architect or layperson designing a school should think about this from the very beginning. It's not a very remarkable but somewhat beautiful example in Bangladesh. It's just by putting this, uh, this um, bamboo structure in such a way, they are somehow articulate the place for this classroom. But all the rooms are connected with each other. The accessibility for children of different ages. Of course, this is nothing new for you. This is just a checklist for architects to think about these things. So we make everything accessible to children. I'm also giving advice to architects instead of making everything child-sized, which is something you see very often, especially in Europe or in the US. So everything is very small so that children, they, they don't have to get up today. So it's better to make it accessible, even with things which are high, for small children. So then you don't put them, you don't make them smaller than they are, but rather enable them to take part, be a part of the adult's world. Um, the acoustics, another thing which is n almost never really taught in architectural programs. Uh, usually, in, in where I'm from in Switzerland, um, we only talk about the acoustic as so far as we try to avoid any noise to, trans to go through a wall or through a, through, through, through a floor. That's what we think when we think about uh, acoustics. But you know, the idea in Montessori architecture is to let certain noises come through. I told you about not having any doors, so we want to hear other voices. And there's also a distinction between noise and sound. So we want to let in certain sounds, beautiful sound, the singing of a bird, when it rains, the drop of the water from the roof. To think about this thing is very crucial. So to let purposely, on purpose openings to specific directions, it's an essential part of a Montessori environment. This is again an example from Bangladesh. Uh, the proportion of walls to include storage space, that's an advice we also give, because um, a Montessori environment basically is a big shelf. So you have, uh, for a certain amount of children, you have a certain amount of materials, and uh, so this determines the length of shelf you need. So we give the advice to include storage into the wall. By this, you don't have to buy necessarily furnitures, just for, for storing your materials. And thick walls, on the other hand, have always the advantage of providing a better room climate. 
the school in Burkina Faso, where it becomes very hot during the day, provides the children with such a pleasing environment and temperature that they are not dependent on any air conditions. So by this, they also save a lot of running costs. So again, it's a contribution to sustainability. Um, the organization of open storage space, this is something we have to tell the architects, but not for you. It's very important as well, so that they understand that storage should always be open. They should never be closed. So you can, you can also avoid all the doors for the storage, for the shelves in a Montessori environment. Even for things like paper, you know, let them know how much paper you have. So make things visible, it's something very important. Um, many people ask me, what did you find out? So you went to so many schools, so what did you find out? And if I have only one minute to explain, then usually I, I, I only explain this. Because if you look at a conventional classroom or kindergarten room, it's, it's, it's always done in such a way that the person who teaches there, the woman or the man, can be placed anywhere in the room and he or she can see every single child. This is how we understand the classroom. And uh, it actually still follows the idea of a panopticum. So this was an idea uh, created in the 18th century already, by the end of the 18th century. Uh, this panopticum idea that it is an ideal prison. So where you have a single person or watchman in the center and he can see every single prisoner. And this is still how we build classrooms today. So if I have to break it down, what is Montessori architecture, and say, hey, just create a room which allows children to be hidden from the teachers. Because that's the essential thing, to trust the child to do what he, what he or she wants. And also it gives the freedom to, to teachers not to see everything, not to have to control everything to pay attention to, this, to the children who really needs the attention, not to everyone. So if you have to do only one single thing, then create a room which has at least an L shape so that someone can go behind the corner. <laughs> so the possibility for observation without intrusion. This is what it's called. Um, then for the ones who need a little bit more than just be hidden behind the corner, we also want to provide the possibility of seclusion. So we give a space where someone is upset, needs some, wants to read a book. We also give a space for these children to do so. This, it's again, it's Bangladesh. They did the wall so thick. This is one and a half meter thick wall. So they were able to include a whole system of caves into the wall. And this is all done with soil. So it's extremely nice to touch. Very pleasing, a very nice environment. The placement of window seats. So if you have, uh, on one spectrum, you have 
these places where you want to be completely secluded. You, on the other hand, have also space which allows you to correspond with the environment, but by still enjoying the climate of your room. Everyone who has a cat knows how um, attractive this place is, because cats, they like to sit in front of a window and to stare out of the window for many hours. This is an example from uh, Tervuren in Belgium, but it can be done in a multitude of fashions. This is true for everything I'm going to show. Pattern 16, um, the preference of skylight. Um, well, that's a good example here. So um, this is something you can always do. You can use the walls for doing something different. So you let in light wherever you have no access to the outside through ceiling. It gives a more natural type of light because except in the early morning and late evening where you are not in school anyway, sun always shines from the top. So it gives a very natural lightening source. So that's, that's why there's a certain preference to light coming from the top. Also, got, especially for places such as Burkina Faso, so you would like to avoid windows anyway because windows are always a way how heat can enter the room. But at the same time, you want to give enough light so that you can work in it. Then you have to, uh, then you have to support the light every, everywhere where you don't have the possibility or when it's night or when it's evening, when it's bad weather condition. So we do also activity-based lightening. And you know, usually you have something called a general lightening. Here the general lightening is what you have on the very top. This you see in banks, in hotels, in actually everywhere. We always talk in architecture about general lightening. But in Montessori we, we avoid general lightening altogether. We don't need it. What we want when we introduce light is to, get, to make activity-based lightening. So we think of the activities such as a reading corner. So we provide light for the reading corner. We don't have to provide all the same type of light. We just provide the light we need. And this can also save a lot of money. If you don't have to think of a lot of light sources, but a few who gives the specific light you need, maybe for a, you know, for a corner where you sit on the floor. Because you can also use light in order to articulate space, as I told you in the very beginning. The meaningful access to water so, we, our children, they want to have access to water. We use the word meaningful because we at the same time also want to point out that water is not something to be wasted. I mean, being here in Western Cape at this time is a, should also remind us all that water is a very scarce uh, means of life. So, meaningful access of water is even more uh, important. This you can find anywhere. So I especially like this type of solutions where you have a pump. We should also do this in Europe. Because the nice thing about the pump is that uh, you have to be at least two to, to make it work. Because uh, if you pump by yourself, you, you will never get the water. And also it shows that you have to put certain effort in something so it becomes a value. And... Uh, and that's why I like, these are child-sized pumps. Again, this is a photograph taken at the Meti School by Anna Heringer, 
a female architect from Germany, but in Bangladesh. It's a very, very nice example. The understanding of toilets is part of education. This is another thing. I mean, architects usually, as I told you, they put a lot of effort in the size of the penitentiary, uh, sorry, the classrooms. And, uh, and, and so they reduce things like toilets to the bare minimum. They just do what is necessary to be done. And what we say is, the toilet is just another classroom. So the toilet has to have at least, if not more, attention than a classroom. Because it's an essential part of education. It starts with the placement of the toilet. You shouldn't place the toilet too close to the classroom because you want that the children have to walk from the classroom and have an experience, a moment of contemplation. It wants to see other things. So the way to the toilet is already part of this education. So don't do it too close. Give it a little bit space in between. Let them walk. And then, of course, a toilet has to be designed in such a way that it's not that it's that's a pleasing um, experience to go there. A surface which actually can be cleaned by a child. Huh? So if you do it in many ways, I see it. In, it doesn't have to do something with Africa. It's really a problem which you can face all over the world. And so put your effort in designing a toilet which really deserves the, the term of a classroom. I mean, this is just an example of something I drew, um, something I have seen, a classroom also in, uh, in, in Colombo as well. So they just have these high, these half high walls. So this child is completely exposed um, to, the, to the natural environment. It's still covered. And they really like to go to this toilet. It's, at the same time, it gives enough privacy. For children, this is absolutely plenty, what from my observation. And at the same time, also gives the teachers the, a little bit the control. So they, they still know there's someone there. Uh, pattern 20. So we're going sl slowly to the end. So, um, so now we are on, on the second last level already. The transitional spaces between in and outside. So this is always a nice thing to have if you have, uh, on one hand you have the classroom, on the other hand you have the garden, that you have something in between. So it's a room which is, in which you can expand every single time the weather allows you. So you can open your classroom, you go into it, it can be a terrace. In many ways I see terraces in front of the building, so just before you enter the classroom, but it's not the same thing. What, what, I, what we mean is that you have an extension of your personal classroom to the outside. And where you can do a lot of activities which involve, for instance, waters. It's also the, way, the place where children start to interact with other children because the garden belongs to anyone. The Inclusion of children's kitchen, that you have a place where children can prepare food uh, for their class and for others. Then the creation of a everyday theater, so that you have a place where they can come together, where they can play, uh, plays on stages, where they can sing, where they can perform. Um, 
we give often the advice to use the, the greeting space for this area because you can combine these things. Because in many ways what we see, especially in developed uh, countries, that some schools which are rich enough, so they would allow themselves to have an assembly hall. That's not the same thing. Because an assembly hall, you put a lot of, of, of means into creation and building an assembly hall, and then you have something which is only open for a very short period of the year. And usually it's closed other than this. That's why many schools, they, they try to combine sports hall with the assembly hall, so that you can do either sport or you make an assembly. Again, it's not the same. So this, so, so the, to make the greeting space, the, the everyday theater, gives a lot of meaning because, because it's already there. But you can do it in many different ways. Um, walking, uh, oh. Okay, then gymnastic space, of course, uh, that you have a place where you can do sport, physical activities. Um, we also give the advice to do it in such a way that it can be seen from the classrooms. So that in both ways, so in one, ha in one hand, it motivates the children who are still inside the classroom to do something uh, like a sports activity. And at the same time, if someone makes something like f playing football or basketball or volleyball, and they know they are observed, they also give better performance. So there's also a game between the inside and the outside. There's actually a good, very beautiful picture in your seminar paper. And as you see, now we also start to, um, I said, entrance on the east. Now we are slightly going to south and west. Because now, in the in the after, after lunch, our metabolism tends to be that we are tired. So I can see a lot of people yawning. I hope it's not just because of me, but because of uh, what we experience every day. <laughs> so that's why you give uh, a certain preference to physical activities in the afternoon. So it also allows you to place, for instance, these places, the, like a, a sports place, on the south or west side. Um, the provision of a walking on the line space, this is clear for you. Usually you just drew, you draw up something on the floor. But I think architects should think a little bit more carefully about this. Because, you know, you want to involve things like music, maybe. You, you need a space which allows to do all these things. So they should think about this properly. So provi the provision of a walking on the line space, I would put as a... It's, not, it's, it's something essential. Uh, the role of the school as habitat for animals and plants. Again, something architects should think about. Otherwise, you are forced to do something like this. By, by <laughs> so, you know, they can think about how, how, do, how, how should we include this? How, how, what, what about the source of water? Where do they keep animals? You know, this should be a, a, a part of, of, of creating a space from the very beginning. Okay, we almost finished. So, uh, pattern 26, it's the west side location of the garden. I mean, it's kind of self-evident. <laughs> um, workshops, to have workshops is very important. So. So actually, there is a very nice example. I just have been in South England. 
uh, around Brighton. So their workshop, the children they produce and to main they maintain all the furnitures of the school. So this school is completely um, self-sustainable with regard to their furniture. They also have a forest, so they, they fell their own timber and they produce with the older children the, the, the furnitures, uh, furniture for, for their school. Also your school the, in Tanzania, it's a very nice one. It has a very nice workshop, very beautiful paintings they do there. And then last but not least, um, the furniture. It's to say that the, there's a one school, the Meti School in Bangladesh, which does not contain any furniture. So everything works without furniture. So if you do the architecture very rightly, you, you need almost no furniture. So some furniture we may still need. So at the very end, we think about the things which are missing, and these are the furniture. So now I have come to the end. I'm sorry for the two times so far the system broke down. Um, before you start to kill me, please let me underscore that what I just told you, it's uh, what we found out so far. It's a work in progress. They don't represent a final list of divine rules. They are not the 28 commandments of Montessori architecture. <laughs> it's just the beginning of a discovery. Thank you, very, thank you very much. It was not the end. Um, <laughs> it was the end, but let me just give you a brief uh, view of what is coming next, because Lynn said rightly it's a five years process. So right now, and that's why I just met uh, yeah, in uh, Tanzania, and we are now organizing an um, architectural competition. M me means Arto Wasser Foundation again. Um, in Tanzania, so we, in, so we invite architects, mainly female architects, to work with the, with the draft design instrument to try to um, design uh, education environments for the Maasai. There's one project in the Maasai region, and another one is around Tanga. So they are going to design based on what I just told you. They will also give us the feedbacks for the usage of the handbook. This is not the handbook, this is just a seminar paper, so we're still working on the draft version. Um, the final version of the book, it's going to be published on the 31st of August 2020. And I know you all know the significance of this date. It's the 150th anniversary of Maria Montessori. So this is planned to be held in Rome with a direct link connection to Tanzania, where we are going to start, we make the ground founding, the ground stone founding of the construction.